Women writing about women's issues inevitably confront questions. Why are you writing about that? Is there a chip on your shoulder, and if so, how did it get there? What started me down the path to this book was an unusually gendered college experience. I arrived at Yale in 1970, the second year that the university began admitting women undergraduates. The transition was still bumpy. Administrators reassured unhappy alumni that they would not reduce the number of men to accommodate co-eds, so my class was described as a thousand male leaders and 250 women. Our arrival unsettled a campus with a 200-year tradition of all-male clubs and classrooms. An alumni reunion preceding my arrival captured the flavor of the times. As William Buckley later recalled, the provost was present while two striptease artists put their hearts into their work. After they finished, someone asked, What is the official Yale position toward this? The provost cast a stern look in their direction and replied, Yale's position is that the second one is better than the first. The university's position on coeducation was more complicated. The reasons are recounted in a 1971 book, Women at Yale, the liberation of a college campus. When I arrived, most of the men gave little evidence of having been liberated. Some greeted the female invasion with obvious distaste. Yale's responsibility was to produce leaders, which by definition excluded women. As one professor noted, it was not an accident of history that virtually all world leaders were men. Another common view expressed with uncommon candor by a disgruntled alumnus was that male undergraduates who wanted to concentrate on important matters like the basic principles of thermodynamics would be diverted by the idiotic trivia that all women try to impose on men. The type of female student who might want to focus on topics like thermodynamics was equally unappealing. Women who were assertive in the classroom or too intellectual outside it were unfeminine. In some courses, it was clear that co-eds were meant to be seen but not heard. Our comments were dismissed, devalued, or simply ignored. Women were captive to the perennial double standard and double bind. We were at risk of appearing too feminine or not feminine enough and what was assertive for a man was abrasive for a woman. There were petty indignities as well. At a party following the Harvard-Yale football game for team members and their guests, everyone referred to me as Greg's date. No one even pretended that the women were important enough to have first names. Although the university's leaders saw coeducation as the wave of the future, they appeared unprepared for the transformations that it implied. Ironically enough, for two centuries, women had been excluded from institutions like Yale on the assumption that they were different. But once they were admitted, the official assumption was that they were the same 
and that only modest adjustments would be necessary to accommodate their presence. So my freshman dormitory got renovated bathrooms with extra mirrors, along with a security guard whose function was unclear. Was he there to protect morals or just to give the appearance of doing so?